Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One day, Arlene Bronzaft got a piece of very valuable information. Bronzaft is an environmental psychologist, and she was teaching a college class in the 1970s when she was given the information, which concerned a public elementary school. It's a school in Inwood, way up in the northern tip of Manhattan. And there are elevated train tracks just about 200 feet from the school. David Owen is an author who has written about this unusual day in Arlene Bronzaft's life. On that day, in the 1970s, one of the students in her class, who happened to be the mother of a child at this particular elementary school, said, there's a problem with the school. This train is so loud, it's so terrible, every few minutes the teachers have to stop while the train goes by, and then they have to regain the attention of their students. And it's terrible, and we want to sue. This was interesting to Bronzaft on two fronts. First, a few years before, the mayor of New York, John Lindsay, had named her to an advisory group on transportation. Second, Bronzaft's husband just happened to be a lawyer. And she knew filing a successful lawsuit, that wasn't going to be easy. And if you're going to sue, you need data. And so let's see if we can get some data. And she went to the principal of the school, and they were able to look at reading test results over a period of years and saw that students on the train side of the building, on the loud side of the building, were reading a a full year behind students on the quieter side. For kids in the classrooms on the side closest to the train, it was like sitting at a rock concert in the front row for 30 seconds every four and a half minutes. And Bronzeft ended up publishing a study contrasting the kids on the two sides of the building, who performed so radically differently in school. The study caught the public's attention. It was widely read and reported on. And the city ended up putting rubber pads between the rails and the ties and making some other changes, adding acoustic tiles to the ceiling of the school. And indeed, they measured again, and the problem had gone away. But it shows that in very clear form, the effect that sound levels can have on learning on people's lives. David Owen is the author of the book Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World, as well as a staff writer for The New Yorker. He argues that though this case may have offered a shockingly clear example of the power of noise, most of us, even if we don't realize it, live every day with the health-altering effects of the modern noise machine around us. Airplanes flying overhead, car traffic, truck traffic, transportation traffic, and the effects are not only on, they're on everything. You know, health effects, birth weight of newborns, um, insomnia, diabetes, life expectancy, measurable years of life are lost to exposure to high levels of sound. It might be hard to believe that excess noise can have such dramatic consequences, But Owen says that if you or anybody you know has hearing loss, that decline in hearing has probably been going on for decades. It generally does not start suddenly around 50 or 60 years old. In fact, it probably began with loud music when you were a kid or sounds around you, both those you could control and those you couldn't. And then, as you became an adult, it ramped up. People who work in open offices undergo stresses that people who have their own little quiet studies do not. And they can show up in all sorts of ways, in health effects and in insomnia is a place where it commonly occurs. 
Owen himself has been thinking for a long time about how much the world has changed for our ears and how tough it is for them to cope with recent inventions. In large part, he started pursuing this issue because of one woman, his grandmother. A hundred years ago, uh, she grew up in Austin, Texas, and a suitor took her duck hunting near Austin and aimed his shotgun by resting the barrel on her shoulder. And when he fired, he not only missed the duck, but also deafened her, especially on that side. So all my memories of her involve her clunky hearing aid and speaking super loud and having these sort of uh, complicated telephone conversations with her where you had to repeat things. And Owen will admit that he now struggles himself because his past was too loud, too often. I was born in 1955, and I think back to all the firecrackers I shot off and threw at my friends and the lawns I mowed without ear protection, the power tools I used, listening to Steppenwolf with my stereo speakers leaning against my head. You know, my friends and I would go to concerts, we'd sit in the front row, try to sit in the loudest possible part of, of whatever the venue was. And when I, when I think back, I'm amazed, not that I have some hearing problems, but that I can hear anything at all. Owen has tinnitus, which is a constant high-pitched ringing in the ears. It's very common in America and is often experienced by people with some hearing loss. But as our hearing as Americans gets worse, Owen argues that sounds, like the surround sound at movies, it often just gets louder to compensate. Now, it may be that the relative quiet, especially in cities, during the coronavirus pandemic will become more the norm. But probably not. It's likely that in a couple years, we'll be right back into our loud old patterns. Which means that whether we're 5 or 35 or 85, we may be headed towards a future in which our ability to hear continues to diminish. And that's a future worth considering. Owen notes that Helen Keller, who was both deaf and blind, said that to her, being deaf was more difficult. And she said it was by far the worst disability, and people asked her all the time. And she said that because it cuts you off from humanity, from basically from interaction with other people. You can talk to somebody who's blind and not realize for quite a while that that person is blind, but you know right away when someone can't hear. But the reality, even in a country where two-thirds of people over 70 have hearing loss, is that we tend to be reluctant to seek medical attention for hearing problems. One reason is that, you know, if you have trouble seeing, you will go to an eye doctor and you will get a pair of glasses. Nobody hesitates to do that. The average wait time between noticing a hearing problem and going to a medical professional to deal with it is 10 years. That's the average time. Wow. So people don't get right on it with hearing, (laughs) apparently. No, they don't. One reason is that it kind of creeps up on you. Hearing loss does. And another is that there's a stigma to wearing hearing aids. Mm -hmm. It's a sign of decrepitude in the minds of people. Uh, Now, one sort of encouraging development is that You walk around, now you see people with stuff in their ears all the time. They've got their AirPods on or they're wearing headphones. It's not a, you don't look weird if you have something in your ear. So it's at least possible that that stigma will diminish in time, but it's it's still there. How much do you think our modern world 
has contributed to the incredible prevalence of hearing loss, um, which, as you said, yeah, I mean, it, it may uh, in some ways affect the majority of people uh, like over 65, over 70, but those people have really been losing their hearing for decades. I mean, they were young people losing their hearing. That's why they have hearing loss. Um, how much is the modern world different from, you know, the world a few hundred years ago in terms of people losing hearing? Oh, it's totally different. I mean, you think about what the world sounded like when we didn't have machines, uh, especially when we didn't. I think the big change was when we started pounding on metal. It, it was uh, the first occupational hearing loss was probably suffered by people like, you know, tinsmiths and silversmiths and ironmongers. And right. so it was when we started doing big, loud things with metal, and that and uh, and gunpowder, a bigger threat to people's hearing in many parts of the country, bigger than playing music too loud, is uh, firing guns. And right-handed hunters will often lose hearing on their left side. It's the ear that's most exposed to the to the mm. sound of the, of the weapon. It's a huge problem in the military. The number one and number two service-related health claims by military veterans are tinnitus, which is that ringing in the ear, and uh, and hearing loss. Really? Okay, because just the weapons they're using are so loud. The weapons they're using are loud and, they're, and getting louder. And then in addition, just military life is loud. Mm-hmm. Probably the loudest work environment on Earth is an aircraft carrier. Even just sleeping on an aircraft carrier, you can damage your hearing because of the the background noise of jets taking off and landing. The Veterans Administration is the largest single purchaser of hearing aids in the United States. Hmm. Something like a fifth or a quarter of all hearing aids are bought by the Department of Defense. It would be much simpler, less expensive to protect the hearing of soldiers and to create a culture in the military that it's okay to protect your hearing. Yeah. Like on a firing range, the soldiers will say, you know, the 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 sergeant who was when we were doing riflery practice, you know, sneered mm. at us when we talked about putting on hearing protection. And there now hunters use them. You you can Cabela's catalog has pages and pages of devices that may actually improve your ability to hear soft sounds, but then shut down within a very small fraction of a second after a gunshot. So they both enhance the hearing of things like deer walking through dry leaves, but also protect the hunter's ears from the consequences of a gunshot. How do you contrast like loud... So, I mean, there are loud sounds in nature, right? There are like thunderclaps, there are animals that are loud. How do you contrast what we were sort of equipped to deal with in terms of our ears uh, and loud sounds? And then the difference between that and going to a movie um, or going to a concert or things that obviously, no, thousand years ago, nobody was doing. Right. No, we evolved to hear a roaring lion and to hear the footsteps of a predator on dry leaves in a forest. Our ears are equipped to handle those things, and they evolved to handle those things. It's the stuff that we have invented for ourselves since then that are, are problematic. And music is one of them. And it's not just rock concerts. It's, you know, violinists go deaf on the left side, too, just the way really? hunters do, the way infantry soldiers do. In addition, the effect of, you know, being a symphony orchestra musician depends not just on the instrument you play, but on the instrument played by the person who sits behind you. So if you've got a French horn right behind you mm-hmm. blasting at your head, there are very definite health effects, hearing effects. It's suffered by musicians who you wouldn't, you know, it's not Megadeth. It's the New York Philharmonic. Right. 
that's really interesting to me because I think everybody would think, I would think, oh, it's, you know, people who go to heavy metal concerts and so loud. But the notion that you can be in the New York Philharmonic and you can still lose your hearing because a symphony is still loud, even if it's playing Beethoven, that's, uh, that I never occurred to me. No, and it never occurred to, I think, most musicians either. And the Berklee College of Music just started issuing hearing protection to students, to all students. And there are there is good hearing protection for musicians. There are filters or earplugs called musicians' earplugs. I have several pairs that I bought for 10 or $15 on Amazon. You can also get custom-fitted ones, fitted by an audiologist that mm. costs several hundred dollars. What they do is they bring down sound levels pretty much evenly across the whole spectrum of frequencies. So music still sounds like music. It's just quieter. With the kind of cheap foam earplugs that people often use, the effect is it reduces high-frequency sounds more than others. But uh, a good musician's earplug will bring the sounds down equally across the whole scale. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking to David Owen. He's the author of Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker. Um, for for you know people who have forgotten uh, what they were taught in ninth grade biology about how y- your ears work, um, and I'm definitely among them. Um, how does it happen that over time, whether it is by setting off firecrackers or being in an orchestra or whatever it is, uh, mowing the lawn, that you start off with good hearing in your life, and then it it gets worse over time? The ear is an amazing piece of equipment, this extraordinary infrastructure. And there were hearing researchers that I spoke with who said, you know, the more I've learned about this, the more I'm amazed that it works. And I think there is that kind of astonishment. It's not that it ceases to be seem magical to them. It seems even more magical once they begin to unpack it. If you poke one index finger into your ear and then point the other one straight into the eye on the same side of your head and then imagine imaginary lines going from the tips of those fingers, where they meet is your cochlea, the little tiny receiver in your inner ear. Okay. Uh, it's kind of protected by the hardest bone in the body, and it's tiny. It's like the size of a miniature chocolate chip uh, okay. size and shape. <laughs> it's this little thing. But packed into it is an extraordinary structure of cells and membranes that are a receiver that receive vibrations from the outside world and convert them into what we perceive as sound. And, you know, if you took the insides of that cochlea, of that little snail shell, tiny, tiny shell, and rolled it up into a ball, you could tee it up on the head of a pin. I mean, it's not, it's it's like the size of a BB. It's nothing. And yet, you know, a newborn baby, an MIT physicist told me, with undiminished hearing, if you put that baby in an environment in which there was really no other sound, a so-called anechoic chamber, okay. that baby would at least theoretically be able to hear the collisions of, of air molecules. What? We wow. pick up, and you think, too, you know, I was, I was thinking one day, I was, I'm sitting at my desk. I hear myself typing. I can hear the furnace come on in the basement. I can hear my wife around two corners in the kitchen talking on the telephone. I can hear cars 100 feet up a hill through trees, through my house, through the storm windows and the windows. I can hear them going by. And then an airplane flying six or seven miles overhead, I can hear that too. And all these sounds, it's little pulses of air pressure. Sound isn't a a beam of particles. It's not like light. It's not like a a laser beam. It's just little pressure fluctuations in the air that push against our, our eardrums. And from with this little thing inside uh, our head, we're able to extract an extraordinary amount of information. Hmm. 
And yet we're incredibly careless with it. Hmm. One of the things that is striking to me is um, the fallout effects of losing of losing hearing in ways you you wouldn't think. Um, you talk about it being um, negative for like, you can't play golf as well if you start to lose your hearing. You can't play tennis as well if you start to lose your hearing generally. Why is that? Well, it's, it's amazing. You wouldn't think that it would have you any effect it's a at visual. all. These are visual games, right? Right. And Golf Digest did a study. You know, It was not a double-blind experiment or anything like that, but they muffled the hearing of golfers and had them hit shots both when they could hear and when they couldn't and make putts and things like that. And they found that their ability to perform went down. And you think, well, how can that be? When you hit a golf ball, the ball is gone from your golf club before the sound gets to your ear. How can it have any effect? And what apparently happens is the brain is constantly kind of recalibrating itself in an activity like that. So it's judging the solidness of hits based partly on what it hears and calibrating itself for the next shot. Very much so in tennis. Tennis players get a lot of information from the sound of a ball hitting Mm. the racket of an opponent or the sound of the ball hitting the ground. And when they can't hear that, it's hard. There are tennis. There have been deaf tennis players, not at the highest levels, but who have basically taught themselves to see what hearing players can hear, hmm. and they've had success doing it. But it's like these other compensations. It requires a huge amount of brain power to do it. You have to concentrate uh, on something that seems automatic to other people. Do doctors and scientists have any sense? I mean, we now live in a world in which... I often feel like when I'm walking down the street, a good 60% of people have little white, you know, earbuds mm. basically hanging out of their ears, right? Um, the fact that, that you know, instead of going maybe to a loud venue and things being loud, people are piping things directly in. Do we know how or if that changes things? Uh, well, we know that they often play them too loud. You can hurt your hearing with earphones, with your AirPods, if you turn the music up too loud. There's a, another problem, too, which is you know somebody who's doing a loud job mowing a lawn, and they put on headphones, not to muffle the sound, but then they play it loud enough so that they can hear it over the sound of the lawnmower, and they're just compounding the, the difficulty. Hmm. Rock musicians are a great uncontrolled experiment in what loud music does to ears, and you think the guys who now who are approaching 70 the, the, from the classic rock era, they all have hearing loss. And you know when they would play, not only are they playing music really loud so that they're blasting loud music out into the auditorium, they also, in order to hear their own instruments over everybody else, they have a monitor at their feet. You look back at old pictures, there's a wedge-shaped speaker right at their feet that is letting them hear their own instrument over everybody else. It was an arms race. You know, you have to keep turning it up in order to hear it over everything else as as your hearing goes away. Now they're more likely the monitors are in-ear monitors, and they at least have the possibility of being quieter, although musicians often will turn those up too loud, too. Um, How good is the science on the other end? Like, how amazing are hearing aids now, since apparently a lot of (laughs) us will need them? Hearing aids are pretty amazing. They're also extraordinarily expensive. And they have been optimized for size to make them tiny and inconspicuous rather than necessarily for performance. Hmm. Hearing aids now, they're like half the size of a candy corn. You put them so far wow. into your ear that nobody can tell you have them. The technology is mind-boggling that you can put that much technology into this tiny thing that runs for a week on a tiny, tiny battery. But you give up some fidelity with that. If people were willing to wear conspicuous hearing improvement devices, 
they would have better results. David Owen is the author of Volume Control, Hearing in a Deafening World. He's also a staff writer at The New Yorker. David, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you. Cochlear implants have been used to successfully restore or improve hearing in hundreds of thousands of people. But they've also got something of a controversial history in the deaf and hard of hearing community. Some praise the implants as medical miracles, but others worry they're being hailed as a cure for something that didn't need curing. You can read more about the mixed feelings that come with these implants on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineer David Goodman. We also say goodbye this week to our fantastic intern, Teresa Lawler. We wish her tons of luck, and we send her off with a very big thank you. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Innovation Hub.